Welcome to the Let's Talk EMDR podcast, brought to you by the EMDR International Association, or EMDRIA. I am your host, Kim Howard. In this episode, we are talking with EMDR certified therapist, consultant, and trainer, Michael Coy, about EMDR, complex trauma, and dissociation. Michael is located in Bremerton, Washington. Let's get started. Today, we are speaking with EMDR certified therapist and consultant, D. Michael Coy, about EMDR therapy for complex trauma and dissociation. Thank you, Michael, for being here today. We are so happy that you said yes. Kim, I'm so appreciative of the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Michael, tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming an EMDR therapist. So, I was an EMDR recipient before I was an EMDR trained therapist. In 2007, I started my first official job as a social worker, my first professional gig in a residential treatment center, working with severely abused and neglected adolescent wards of the state. Mm. It's probably an understatement to say it was really activating for me because my own teenage years were really rough. And within a handful of weeks of starting this job, I had a panic attack in my office. I wasn't with a client, thankfully. But it was after having had a session with a client. And I immediately said, this is not good. Right. This is my first job out of grad school. I need to figure this out. So I went and found a therapist. I didn't know anything about EMDR. I wasn't even looking for that because I didn't know it existed. I found somebody that attended my alma mater. University of Chicago Social Work School. That was kind of because I figured at least I'd know where they came from. Right. And I got into this to see this person. And in the first couple of sessions, after doing some initial history taking, or at least what I came to understand was history taking, she said, I'm trained in this therapy called EMDR, and I think it could be helpful for you. And sent me, and mind you, this is 2007. So at this point, I I didn't know any of this history at the time, but at this point, even the way that EMDR was trained was in flux. So this was still, I don't call it the Wild West, but in a way, it, it still kind of was. So there wasn't a ton online. There wasn't really Reddit in the way that it is. There wasn't anything. So I I just looked at what I could find. Emdria's website existed at the time. So I said, yes, let's do this. And it changed my life. Now, I learned an awful lot about myself as a result of doing trauma processing, because prior to that, I'd I'd been in therapy before, but it always been uh, exclusively either cognitive behavioral therapy or more insight-oriented therapy, like psychodynamic psychotherapy, which is how I was trained. But at some point after a year or so, I said, I need to get trained in this. And it coincided with me beginning to dabble in private practice work a little bit. So I got trained in 2011. And then I guess I was off to the races. So, and I've never really, I mean, I've looked back out of curiosity, but post training, I've just kind of continued to grow and learn over these years. And now I'm involved in training other people. That's an excellent story. And I, I've said this before on this podcast and I've said it in conversations with 
other staff people that I work with and other members, what you guys do for a living, taking on other people's mostly horrific life events, taking them into your brain and into your psyche, I would presume even if you had, quote unquote, a regular upbringing or a non-traumatic upbringing would be traumatic enough. And so if you've had something in your history on top of all that, my goodness, you all have to have some kind of outlet for, you know, your stress and to be able to, to continue to do your work because you want to help people heal. And so you have to have whatever, however you define self-care. And if that includes therapy, if you put that under that umbrella, you have to do those things because I can't imagine doing this work five days a week or six days a week or however much you work and then not doing anything about what you're learning in session to, and so that you can, you can maintain your, your sanity for lack of a better term. You know, I would presume that it's, it's crucial to get that kind of work done. So I would say undoubtedly. Yes. And the last number of years in particular have been quite fraught. I've seen with everything going on, clients, have been activated. I don't want to say clients because we are our clients. We're just sitting in a different chair. All right. I am not better or different than any of my clients because, again, I have been a client too. Right. I've continued to do my own work because if I don't, I actually run the risk of doing harm. You know, blind spots take all kinds of forms. What is your favorite part of working with the MDR? I don't know that I have one favorite. And there are different dimensions. There are the right-brained reasons, and then there are the left-brained reasons. Uh, the the left-brained reasons are I really enjoy the conceptualization, like trying to understand how A and B and C might fit together, and then dealing with the problem-solving of how do I use EMDR with this person? in this situation, in this particular context, you know, the bigger context maybe of where they are in their life and so on, working around challenges and barriers potentially to using EMDR in some situations. In my case, because of my specialty, a lot of situations. The more right-brained is the journey along the way. You know, the train metaphor of the, you know, the train moving down the track to its destination that we use in EMDR therapy, there's this process of kind of being a passenger along. I mean, the, the, I'm the navigator, so to speak. I'm also kind of a, a passenger sitting next to my client as we're going down the track. And there's a lot of right brain to right brain, sort of the emotional communication that occurs in the process. And a lot of that has nothing to do with EMDR. It's about uh, mirror neurons firing. Just between two people, it's attunement. And that's maybe the most enriching aspect is developing the attunement with a client and sometimes feeling what they feel or in some way experiencing what they're experiencing. And even things like along the way in processing, no matter how complex the issue is, there's this point at which I frequently see, it's like the, the train turns the corner and you know that you're closer to the, the destination than the start of your trip. And it just has a feeling to it for me. 
So there's, it doesn't mean it's always going to be a direct route to the destination after that, but I really like that. Additionally, uh, because of my specialty, I specialize in working with complex tra- people with complex trauma and dissociative, dissociation slash dissociative disorders, and there are distinctions. I often can't use standard protocol with at least some modification. So working to understand how most effectively to employ EMDR therapy methods with my clients is an ongoing and always interesting process. It's a pretty gratifying process. That's good to know. I have said this before, but I, I believe that being a mental health professional is really, it's, it's all based in science, what mental health professionals do, right? There's data to back it up. There's research. There's theories that have been implemented and watched over the decades, but it really is sort of an art form, right? You as the, as the practitioner have to figure out what's going to work best for this client. And every client is different. They may all bring in some similar issues that they're having, but they all come from a different perspective on that. And then you have to figure out, okay, what's going to work with this person? And is this the right path? And so it's, it's this balance between these are the things I know that work scientifically, and these are the these are how I'm going to, um, I'm going to implement it in an art form way. And so there's, there's a lot happening in your chair, so to speak. And yeah, there is something that I've found, and I learned this in grad school, as far as the art versus the science, it's not art versus science. It's art and science. They can be merged. They are merged. Yeah. Music is all science. It's all mathematics. So I studied as a I studied voice and music composition in undergrad, so I tend to think of my work very creatively, but also technically. So there's a lot of not knowingness in this work, which is challenging, especially I think sometimes for some people who use EMDR therapy, because there's a lot we need to know, developing a targeting sequence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And knowing a protocol to use or a technique. And it's not always like that. I mentioned a moment ago that I I learned in grad school. I distinctly remember in grad school with one of my psychodynamic psychotherapy professors saying, I just want tools. Why do all of these authors not talk about interventions? They talk about frame of mind and conceptualization and understanding and my professor, who was a psychoanalyst, just shook his head and he had a slight smile on his face. I was very frustrated. I so appreciate that now in a way that I couldn't possibly have back then. I need to not know. And we're all like black boxes. You cannot know another person's mind. You can't know that every, everything that's there. I don't even know all of what's in my own mind. And so learning to tolerate the not knowing this. I think makes us better clinicians. It also helps us, I think, if we can tolerate doing it, it helps us be more pragmatic and more strategic in how we do what we do. That's a great point. It's a good segue to my next question, which is what successes have you seen using EMDR therapy for complex trauma and dissociation or dissociative disorders? So I do want to highlight. So in a previous Let's Talk EMDR podcast, I think it was episode 11, Jamie Marich makes the important distinction between dissociation and dissociative disorders. I I won't go back through the distinction, but I think the distinction that she draws is important. 
So dissociative disorders sit in their own realm in a way. However, if we're talking about complex trauma, we are talking about dissociation. This has been found in the research. I would say there are political debates about the extent of dissociation that exists within the realm of, quote, complex trauma or complex PTSD. Nevertheless, you still have to be careful and thoughtful. I will maybe say more about this as, as this discussion unfolds. But with all that said, I feel really fortunate to have seen a number of positive outcomes during the course of treatment in employing EMDR therapy with clients. There's one client in particular. It was someone with what's called polyfragmented DID. Polyfragmented DID is a concept that was posited in the 1980s by someone in the dissociative disorders field named Bennett Braun. And it's a self, a person with more than 100 self-states. We're talking about a lot of internal complexity born out of a lot of prolonged suffering. So this person brings to mind in this moment, I have been given permission to talk about, teach about this person by them. Uh, so I feel comfortable. I'm not going to go into any gory detail or, or reveal any personal information but what I, that would identify them. But what I would say is it's been a very involved treatment with a lot of different layers. A number of years ago, and working with this person for about six or seven years, it came to light that this person had a profound phobia of both medical and dental care, decades long. And the, the medical and dental issues were unrelated to one another, well, ostensibly, except they both manifested the same way, stay away from providers. Right. And as life brings you things, this person was imminently faced with necessary medical and dental care. So I collaborated with the different self-states that held the trauma material associated with each of these issues. I would highlight that the, the self-state that fronted in sessions, they didn't know a lot of their own history. It was held by other self-states. So different aspects of the story, not just the, the facts, but the emotions, the sensations, et cetera, were fragmented. That's what makes EMDR so complicated. It doesn't work the same way when there's this level of, or it doesn't, I should say, it doesn't necessarily work the way the label says it should, the way we would expect with AIP exactly. Uh, AIP being adaptive information processing, the theory that underlies EMDR. But I had to do a lot of collaborating and trying to figure out who held this material so that as much as it was possible to avoid surprises during processing, to yield a positive outcome, we could achieve that. So ultimately, we were able to use EMDR to address the root causes. And it was a number of sessions, though not nearly as many as I would have expected, probably three sessions for each of the, the, the medical and the dental issues. It didn't look like standard protocol, but it looked close enough that it was recognizable as EMDR. And what happened was this person was freed from the bonds of these traumas. Subsequently, as we were reflecting upon their experience, they observed that this processing changed their life after decades of avoiding medical and dental care. 
and they have been they've subsequently had other rather complex dental stuff that they needed to do because of neglecting dental right. care for so many years. They went through it like a pro. That's fantastic. It was I mean, totally amazing. And yeah. I feel so gratified that I got to participate in this person helping clear those blockages so this person could actually learn to take care of themselves in a way that nobody else ever did. Yeah. For them. Yeah. yeah. And that's always a shame when anyone has to go through something so horrific that it impacts their life in a negative way. But thank goodness this person found you and was able to process some of that so that they could go and get the medical and dental help that they needed so they can be physically healthier in their life and not in pain, hopefully. And that's wonderful news. Yeah. Well, and you know, I've had really good teachers. I have likened using EMDR therapy methods, et cetera, with someone with complex forms of dissociation. I've likened it to riding a unicycle blindfolded uphill while juggling. Oh, <laughs> it's a great image, but yeah, it sounds, it sounds it complicated. Can be challenging, which yeah, is why just a little. knowing the terrain before you start off as much as it's possible to is helpful. There's something else that pops to mind that's not specifically about the processing piece that I kind of want to mention because I don't know if it gets a lot of airtime. I mentioned earlier kind of the process of discovering is gratifying, like that there's this learning how I can use EMDR with people. I will own up front here, I'm not a fan of umpteen protocols. I think if you understand how EMDR tends to work and you understand the phenomena that you're working with, you can be a really good cook and mix together your ingredients without necessarily always having to rely on established modifications. They're good to know. They're important to know. And ultimately, you may not go by the book because every client's different. So with this said, and not being a fan of umpteen protocols, I ironically found myself developing an integrative protocol to address a very specific problem with people with complex trauma and dissociative self-states, in particular that are imbued with perpetrator energy, like someone that harmed them in the past. I won't go into any of the details here because I don't think it's the place for it. But what I would say is I had to come up with something when established approaches were not satisfactorily getting the results that I needed with this client. So I ended up initially on the fly combining elements that I knew. It's like, being in the kitchen and combining ingredients. I've got these leftovers. What can I do with them? Right. And you've got to know your ingredients. So I ended up combining elements of Jack and Helen Watkins's ego state therapy with a capital EST, clinical hypnosis and EMDR therapy, which ended up yielding a really positive impact. Since then, I've further developed it. I've taught others about it in webinars that I've done. And I've promised myself that I will actually write this down in an article and submit it for publication. (laughs) Fingers crossed if I can get myself to just sit down and finish it. This is sometimes you actually come up with something that's unique enough. And there are plenty of examples of this in 
the EMDR literature, there's Jim Knipe there. I mean, we could spend hours just talking about all the different modifications right. to accommodate complex trauma dissociation. But sometimes it's kind of amazing what happens when you just start, when you know enough that you can improvise and riff on yes. what you know. That That's where the art form comes into yeah. your therapy practice, where you have to kind of know what's working and what's not and where you can those tools where you can pull from to integrate something that's the best result for your client. Yeah. And yeah. it's sometimes it's not the evidence is an, is a sample of one. The, right. That's the reality of things. Sometimes it's, it's just enough evidence. The research world doesn't tend to pay much attention to N of one these days, but I think it's overlooked and it's still important because an, a sample of one can turn into a sample of five can turn into a sample yes. of 50. Yes. Over time, assuming that people actually document their work. Well, I'm sure that that sample of N1 was extremely grateful to you for you being able to sous chef all of that together in the kitchen it and make a new dish. So. And it, you know, and I've repeated it since then, and so have other clinicians, and the results are pretty consistent, which should tell us something. So we, you end up almost sometimes becoming a clinician researcher without really intending to be. I'm allergic to statistics, but um, <laughs> the process is still engaging and invites curiosity and like, wow, it's amazing what you can do if you know what you're working with and whom you're working with. That's an excellent point. Michael, are there any myths that you would like to bust about EMDR therapy and complex trauma and dissociation? How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not the first person to ask that. So if you can't come up with a good number, just give us like your top two or three myths. Well, so the history of EMDR therapy to treat complex trauma isn't necessarily very pretty. EMDR continues to have a negative reputation among a select number of people in the dissociative disorders field, which is the waters I swim in the EMDR pool and I swim in the dissociative disorders field pool, probably equal time. It's not the EMDR, in my opinion, that's the problem. It's the lack of education about dissociation and the dissociative disorders that's the problem. There is a thinker in the dissociative disorders field named Phil Kinsler, who in a webinar back in 2018 said, any intervention is risky if you don't know your client. And in the same way that we talk about not understanding someone's uh, culture of origin or what they've been through, et cetera. Well, learning about the dissociation, the, com the complexity of their trauma also leaves you ignorant, unaware, and potentially going to, you're going to step in mud puddles more often than not. Right. Now with that, you know, people will say you should never use EMDR. And I think Jamie actually talks about this in, in her interview, in that podcast number 11. Now, the opposing myth, which I would better characterize as a political belief at this point, and I may be treading on thin ice talking about this, is that treating complex trauma dissociation is simply a matter of using either faster or overlapping forms of dual attention stimulus or doubling down on reprocessing to break through the dissociation so that it's just no longer there. I disagree. And the research is limited. And 
I guess what I would say is I'm much more apt to listen to 140 plus years of evidence in the dissociative disorders field than I am to listen to a couple of papers or even a meta study that didn't take actual dissociative disorders into account. And that's just the science. So with that said, most of us didn't get much training in trauma in grad school. I didn't get any. And I had to learn the hard way. And I could easily, based on my early experience with EMDR, have gone in the direction of never use EMDR. I became scared because I did harm to someone. And the route that I ended up taking was going to go get consultation from somebody who was a is was and is a big name in the field. And I am eternally grateful <laughs> that this person was really patient with me as I was trying to figure things out. What I learned was that depersonalization, derealization are the beginning of dissociation, not the end. They're the most obvious manifestations. There's an idea that if, if it's visible, I, I don't know that it's been said, but if it's visible, you can treat it. The problem is that most dissociation is invisible to the naked eye. And that's where people tend to get into, into trouble using EMDR is the stuff you don't know. So there's that. So I always encourage people to get more training. And there are ways to get trained to understand dissociation. Consultation's helpful too. I'd also like to highlight, I know that there is a, you know, a discussion about what is EMDR. There was even a paper with Laliotis and others in 2020 or 2021. And EMDR is a psychotherapy, et cetera, et cetera. And EMDR alone is probably not going to be enough to resolve the issues that surface when someone has complex trauma or dissociation and dissociative disorders, both because of the deep relational harm and how it manifests as what in psychodynamic psychotherapy is described as transference and countertransference dynamics in the therapy relationship. And EMDR doesn't necessarily speak to that. There's only like one paper that's more recent that talks about transference and countertransference dynamics in EMDR. And, you know, there's like the relational imperative in EMDR. It's Mark Dworkin from 2013 that talks about the relationship. At the time, nobody was talking about the relationship. And now everybody is in the EMDR world. But the reality that I have found is that sometimes for some clients and a lot of my clients, the issues that they experience are too deeply set within the psyche to just start poking around with a scalpel, such as EMDR, metaphorically speaking. So I don't know that that necessarily speaks to myths so much as ingrained beliefs, but sometimes they overlap because what starts out as an ingrained belief actually becomes widespread fact. Right. Without Correct. scrutiny. Correct. That does happen. So you may have already answered this question, but if you need to elaborate or want to add more points, you're welcome to. Are there any specific complexities or difficulties with using EMDR therapy for this population? I would say that the level of fragmentation that someone experiences internally is usually the biggest challenge. And that possibility demands a more advanced capacity for the clinician to know how to screen, diagnose symptoms. I'm not talking necessarily diagnosing disorders. I don't necessarily love the DSM, but you do need to know how to diagnose symptoms because 
certain symptoms are going to make things more challenging. And Francine Shapiro was very clear that you need to make sure that you've accounted for anything that can inhibit processing and address it as best you can. You need to understand how to conceptualize a more complex treatment. You know, that metaphor of the hand as the node and the the fingers as channels. Well, when you're talking about complex trauma, you're generally, and even more, you know, some fragmented PTSD, you're talking about multiple hands interlinked. You know, it's like different fingers from different hands are touching. You don't always know by eyeballing what's going on for someone or even eyeballing the dissociative experiences scale screening, whether that's the case, because sometimes people don't know what's going on for themselves. And how are they going to report it on a screener if they don't know it? That's true. Sometimes people explicitly deny what's going on for them because they feel ashamed or they don't want to be labeled as crazy or weak. You know, if they learned that you got to be perfect in order to get by in this family and perfect means you don't have anything happening for you. So there are a lot of different reasons that it might not be obvious at the surface, which means the therapist kind of has to become a detective in a way. It's not saying it's not a us versus them. It's a, we're walking alongside one another, or we're passengers on that train together, reading from the same book in a way. I would also say, and I I touched on this earlier, training only in EMDR-informed approaches to treat complex trauma and dissociation and the dissociative disorders is not adequate. You can learn all kinds of approaches and protocols, but that is not a replacement for knowing how to be a therapist. They're different. I realize that some people may disagree with this and that you can do a lot or most within the realm of EMDR, but it's not all about protocols and target sequencing, in in my estimation. There have been studies done where you'll see therapists from different traditions put alongside one another, so to speak, and evaluators, experts in those different approaches, trying to figure out, well, is this person actually practicing fidelity to that model? And what has been found is that there's a lot of overlap because Mm -hmm. there's not a lot that's new under the sun. And so even if you think you're doing pure EMDR, you're probably not because you as a clinician are an amalgam of everything you've learned. EMDR is considered an integrative therapy. It is very amenable to integration, but they say where ignorance is bliss is folly to be wise. I'm inclined to think that the more you realize intentionally what you're doing, the better the outcome. Um, No, I think you're right. I think, and again, I'm not a professional therapist, so, but we talked about this earlier. We've talked about this before and I, I see it in the magazine articles and that kind of thing. I mean, it, you guys have to decide what works for your client. And sometimes it's a blend of what you know to get the job done, right? And that's where that whole art and science thing blending happens in your chair. You know, you take all of those pieces that you have in your kitchen, you know, you used that analogy earlier, and you're blending up something new and you're serving this dish to your client and you're serving it customized based on what their needs are at the time. I don't see anything wrong with that. I think that's how it's supposed to be. I Same thing when you go to a, med- a medical doctor and you have a physical issue, you know, they have to s- figure out what's going to work for you and they have to bring in all that knowledge that they have and they have to 
find the solution that's good for you. It's Very funny normal. that you mentioned, so the way that you framed that. So I, in the fall 2021 issue of Emdria's Go With That magazine, it was an, it was an issue on dissociative disorders. And I was invited to do a sort of top 10 things that you should know about dissociation. I quoted Catherine Fine. And for anyone who doesn't happen to know who Catherine Fine is, she's a thinker in the dissociative disorders field. She was a student of Richard Cluft, who was one of the considered one of the pillars in the modern dissociative disorders field, or one of the members of the dissociative disorders task force. And you can find that task force's report in, was it appendix E, client safety in the 2018 edition of Shapiro's EMDR text. But in 1999, in an article, Catherine Fine stated, and I'll quote here, it is important to recognize that when working with DID, and she's talking about DID specifically, but I would broaden this even to talking about complex trauma more generally, two things stand out with respect to the organizing treatment models. One, even though the therapist's preferred model of treatment is relevant, particularly to the therapist, the disorder itself will impose the therapeutic interventions. You must adjust to what you're working with, essentially. That's my parenthetical. Yeah. And two, the therapists need to be fluent in the traditional psychodynamic and cognitive perspectives, aided by a clear understanding of hypnosis, because where there's, where there's trauma, there's trance. Somebody who's having a flashback is in a trance. That's my parenthetical there. And the rules governing trance states to best help this patient population negotiate their own stability. So again, some people might argue with that. Based on my experience, I'm very inclined to agree with Catherine Fine. Got it. Michael, how do you practice cultural humility as an EMDR therapist? Fun fact, the term humility comes from the Latin word humilitas. It's related to the adjective humilis, which has been translated as humble, but also as grounded or from the earth. With that in mind, I try to remain grounded and lead with curiosity. I try to avoid assuming anything, which is not easy because we're loaded with assumptions. Yes, we are. But also to continue to cultivate both an understanding of where my clients are coming from and their evolving understanding of where they came from and also where I came from. So different aspects of our respective identities and how they influence the frame and create blind spots. Mine and theirs. I mean, you know, it's not so simple to say we all walk in with you know what they call our assumptive world. It's based on what we've learned. You know, it's based on our insecurities. I certainly have plenty of my ins my own insecurities and so on. And it's not just the culture at large or specific subcultures by my by my estimation that I want to attend to. Family culture plays a really significant role in how we're shaped on a really primal level, even when we're not explicitly aware of it. And I speak of myself in that way. I feel fortunate to have trained as a social worker and find myself drawn to thinking in terms of how different systems and layers within those systems interact with one another. I am by no stretch of the imagination always very successful in this. And hopefully for me and all of us as clinicians, that's where curiosity and self-reflection comes in. You know, that we don't get mired in shame or 
double down because of shame that we don't even know we're holding on to, because that might prevent us from openly and open-heartedly owning our mistakes. It certainly, I have found that in myself. It makes me feel embarrassed at times to discover that, but I'm also like, well, this is just what being a human is. So the older I get and the more healing work of my own that I've done, it's gotten a bit easier, but sometimes I'm still like that 13 year old kid who doesn't know that he's queer yet and kind of knows, but knows that it's not okay to be a certain way and grew up in a kind of rough family and in a place that was really white and racist. And there are all these embedded assumptions about what uh, gender means and that gender is binary and all this other stuff. And it comes back and bites me sometimes. So I just have to keep growing and learning. We've talked about this on this podcast before, and I've said it and I'll, I'll say it again, that I, we, we have a, as a society tend to put people who are in leadership roles solution-oriented roles, doctors, lawyers, dentists, therapists, medical community people, we tend to put them on a pedestal, right? You know, they're they're all-knowing. I'm going to go to them and they're going to fix my problem. Well, you're dealing with people who are human, you know, and who are not perfect. And so it's good to keep in mind that they're trying to find a solution for you and it may not be the perfect solution, you know, at the very beginning but that they're trying to find a, a long-term solution for you that works. And so if we can just remember that our therapists are humans too, <laughs> they have their own lives, they have their own issues, you know, they have their own history, just like you do as a client, but they're trying to help you solve your issues and be a healthier person. And so just remember, nobody's perfect. You know, that's so, that's so interesting to me. And going back to that piece about deep relational harm, one thing I really appreciate from my psychodynamic training is that idea of transference and that with all that you said, it's like a gravitational pull for most of us to look up to someone. Right. We need that. We need to be, be able to idealize someone, right. whether it's as a rescuer or a healer or a mentor, a caregiver. And if someone didn't get that, that gets transferred into the healing relationships. Unfortunately, we are wounded healers, every single one of us. Right. And so there is this friction that develops either because of our own insecurities as clinicians that bleed into the work or because of our assumptions. And that butts up against who the client needs us to see them as and that's where I was highlighting earlier. It's more than only EMDR. There's so many more layers to this that we need to be aware of so that we can account for them because it'll, it'll make our interventions using EMDR or whatever else we're using more attuned and effective, in my opinion. My dad was in the military and my mom used to use a great analogy to remind me and my siblings that everybody's on the same playing field, sort of, you know, she would say, my dad was enlisted and she would say, you know, the general puts his pants on the same way the enlisted guy does one leg at a time. There's a lot of differences, but really the only difference is they just happen to be in a leadership role in a different, you know, and so that was good to remember that everybody's, 
everybody's coming from the same perspective. So try yeah. not to put people too high on that pedestal because then, you know, eventually they have to fall down, right? If they make a mistake. And so um, don't be surprised because they're human. Yeah. And just remember that, you know, you're just as good as the four-star general putting his pants on one leg at a time. So I always like that analogy and, you know, try to remember that when you, when you meet people who you're in awe of and just, hey, yeah. they're just humans, just like you. Sometimes that's part of the growth arc is that someone can fall off their pedestal, but they don't fall so far that they're irredeemable. Right. Michael, do you have a favorite free EMDR-related resource that you would suggest either for the public or other EMDR therapists? Since we're discussing EMDR and complex trauma and dissociation, this leans more toward the dissociation and the dissociative disorders end of things. Complex trauma, just again, depending on how complex it is, it's going to be increasingly or less complex to offer the treatment or, or conceptualize the treatment. But I'm thinking of a trio of articles. The very first three articles ever produced on the use of EMDR to treat dissociation and dissociative disorders. They were all published in the journal Dissociation back in the 1990s, back when people were discovering that EMDR was more complicated, where dissociation was present. The first was by Walter C. Young in, that's Y-O-U-N-G, in 1994 on the use of EMDR to treat phobias. The second was by Sandra Paulson in 1995 on the cautious use of EMDR to treat dissociative disorders. And Sandra was coming from the EMDR side of things and having to learn about dissociation when she discovered it with clients. The third was by Stephen Lazarov and Catherine Fine, whom I mentioned earlier. And this article served as a response of sorts to the Paulson article, and it brought to bear further context from the dissociative disorders field specifically. All of these articles are available free of charge. I kind of think of them as like the triumvirate. They're like the foundation, and they haven't aged, in my opinion. There's still a lot of learning to be found, even though, you know, recent research and recent this and recent that, I mean, youth is always raised on a pedestal, but there's a lot of old stuff that has not, people haven't changed. Dissociation hasn't changed, right. even if, you know, we can do brain scans now, et cetera. But these are available via an archive of the entire run of the journal Dissociation. It's hosted by the University of Oregon. I think it's really important to be a student of history. And these three articles, again, have aged pretty well, in my opinion, even with all the advances, innovations, and innovations that followed. As far as the general public, these are jargon-filled articles. Nevertheless, they are readable. Even for clinicians, they're not super technical articles. And knowledge is power. Information is power. I'd also recommend that from a place like that, People explore the materials on Emdria's website. It's relevant to dissociation, including podcasts and so on, and in complex trauma more generally. Um, and then expand to resources on the websites of the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation, which is www.isst-d.org, as well as the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies, which is www.istss.org. We will go ahead and put all of those things that you mentioned in the um, podcast description, and we'll link to everything so people can find all that information. I'm happy to send you the links to the other stuff that I mentioned. That's great. So, Thank you. 
Michael, what would you like people outside of the EMDR community to know about EMDR, complex trauma, and dissociation? That's a really good question. So if you're seeking a therapist for treatment, find someone who doesn't simply have an interest in or dabbles in treating complex trauma and dissociation. Someone who's not just, oh, I think this is really interesting and neat because you're not a lab experiment. You're a Mm -hmm. human who has lived experience. I would encourage you to do deeper digging and find someone who's dedicated time and effort to education and training and who's really done their homework. Find someone who has some familiarity with the complex trauma treatment guidelines from the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies and the Dissociative Disorders Treatment Guidelines from the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation in the same way that you would want a brain surgeon to know what they were doing Harking back to, Kim, what you were saying earlier, and you'd want them to have more than a passing interest in and knowledge of the brain. Yeah. Like, let's just open this up and see what we find. I'm a general surgeon. Sure, I can operate on your brain. My my joke with my husband is he's always very, I can do it kind of guy. And I'm like, yeah, just because you could do brain surgery doesn't mean that you should do brain surgery. So, yeah. And by the same token... If you are someone seeking treatment and you're, you're listening to us now, you have a right to expect the same level of training of someone exploring with you the depth and breadth of your dissociative experience Correct. and your experience in general. If you're a non-EMDR trained therapist, actually, if you're an EMDR trained therapist interested in or already treating complex trauma and dissociation, EMDR has a lot to offer as an adjunct approach in treating these issues. And it takes time and effort and dedication to learn how to integrate EMDR effectively. I, I at this point, consider this my life's work because the amount of time that it requires. I talk to consultees about this all the time. You really have to dedicate yourself to this. As much as it was attractive for me early on to be a generalist because I needed clients, you end up finding your way to certain specialties almost Mm -hmm. unavoidably. And Sandra Paulson has called EMDR a divining rod for dissociation. I would add to that, I consider it a lightning rod for dissociation because people with complex histories are attracted to EMDR with the hope that it will resolve these long-term issues that they have and hopefully do it as quickly as what's depicted in the media and in a lot of books. So if you're just learning about dissociation, just know that not all complex trauma is the same, but dissociation in all of its manifestations is inextricably woven in. It's important to understand that the dissociative disorders field, again, encompasses a body of literature and training, learning. There's a tradition that spans over 140 years, actually more than that in the earliest writings, but where people were intentionally studying, it's like 140 years. So the actual field itself only really coalesced more formally in the past 40 to 50 years when both PTSD and the dissociative disorders were introduced into DSM-3 in 1980. So this is really interesting stuff and go do your homework. I agree. It's one of those things like, for example, when I'm looking for podcast guests and we try to, we try to, 
run a lot of our podcast topics around any awareness months, you know, and if there's not an awareness month or if I'm just looking for somebody, the first thing I do is if I want to talk about XYZ subject with EMDR, I go to their website. And if they don't have anything on their website that tells me they're sort of an expert in that area, I'm like, well, should I interview them? Should I? And, and so I feel like you should approach it the same way. Like you, you know, if you go to a doctor's website or a medical professional's website and they don't say that they are associated, you know, if you're looking for a plastic surgeon because you've got this scar that you want to get, you know, you're going to have something mm-hmm. done. You you don't want the scar to show in your face. Yeah. You don't want to go to a general surgeon, right? You want to go to somebody who's board certified in plastic surgery, who's kept up the credentials. And it's the same thing for a therapist. You know, if you're looking for somebody with an expertise in dissociation and they don't have it on their website and they don't belong to organizations that say, hey, we're the dissociation experts over here you probably shouldn't go to them because yeah, it's like, what they, kind of training do you have? Right. Yeah. Why would they, they shouldn't put it on there if they're not qualified. So no. they, they might not be qual- as qualified as someone else. And so you to have to be do fair. A yeah. yeah. Digging. And yeah. To be fair with that said, some ducks might swim better than others, even with all that training. That's true. It's, it's not easy to be an informed consumer. A lot of people go into therapy a lot of the people that I've worked with, they came into therapy not knowing what was happening for them. So it's not like they said, oh, I have this going on. I need to find a specialist. Right. And That's true. it ends up being that the therapist who is unaware of these issues, they learn down the line that they may say, oh, there's complex trauma, but the dissociation piece is completely outside their realm. And now they're like, I've been working with this client for a year and we have this strong working relationship. Now what? And so it's like, well, how committed are you to really doing this well? And it's sort of like, oh gosh, <laughs> I didn't, it's the in sickness and health and in right. health commitment sort of thing. Like, well, do I really want to treat this client and what are the ethical considerations and so on? It's, it's correct. Complex. Yeah. <laughs> no pun intended. That, yeah. that. <laughs> Michael, if you weren't an EMDR therapist, what would you be? I would still be a therapist or I'd run an antique store. (gasps) Ooh, I like that. I would shop at your antique store. I like antique stores. Me too. A little too much. They're fun. (laughs) They're fun. Is there anything else you would like to add? I want to invite you all listening to be curious. Fear is the enemy of learning. Or at least it's an impediment, if not the enemy. Sometimes fear keeps us safe. Sometimes it can keep us too safe. It can prevent us from feeling uncomfortable and it's a fine line. So I guess I would just say go forth and learn. It's a great way to end the podcast. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Kim. It was a real pleasure. This has been the Let's Talk EMDR podcast with our guest, Michael Coy. Visit www.emdria.org for more information about EMDR therapy or to use our Find an EMDR Therapist directory with more than 14,000 therapists available. Our award-winning blog, Focal Point, offers information on EMDR and is an open resource. Thank you for listening.